This is an ABC podcast. Beverly, I'm getting married for the fifth time. Well, look, I dreaded falling in love, but I knew this would be my last. Well, it better be. I gotta say, that's amazing timing. That coincides perfectly with the start of your news network's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit. Mazel tov. We look forward to spending the second half of our lives together. Cheers. <laughs> You're 92. Stop everything. What was that all about? Stop everything, Beverly. Drag me out of my 92-year-old body. Help me out. What did I just say? What does it mean? You know, the stereotype is that Asians age gracefully, but I think you are really overachieving because you don't look a day over 37, Ben, but you're 92. That's extraordinary. And congratulations, you're finally embracing straight culture, getting married. (laughs) Multiple, multiple times. No, look, my acting chops today, we're presenting one Rupert Murdoch, 92 years young and preparing for marriage number five. Where does he find the energy? Well, maybe it's just money. Yeah, extraordinary news that is dovetailing with the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit that is having some hearings. This is between Dominion Voting Systems suing the Fox Corporation and Fox News for the statements that so many of its high-profile hosts made in the aftermath of the 2020 elections, basically promoting conspiracy theories about the voting machines, disputing the results that showed that Joe Biden won, and Ben, I don't know about you, but for weeks leading up to this, I have been reading every single report I can in the New York Times that talks about and dissects the entrails of Tucker Carlson's texts where he Mm. talks about how much he privately hates Donald Trump but publicly is still spouting all of the conspiracy theories that so much of the fan base support and espouse. It has been a real reckoning. Yeah, the wedding in all of this does have a touch of the look over there <laughs> situation By the way, I'm getting married for a fifth time. Congratulations, by the way. Love is yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people feel lawsuits and stress. Other people feel lawsuits. And it's like time for wedding bells, time for nuptials. It's a celebration. <laughs> so just a little bit about this news. This was reported in the New York Post, one of the newspapers that the Murdoch media empire owns. Cindy Adams, longtime gossip columnist, had it in her column. And the future Mrs. Rupert Murdoch number five is a woman named Anne Leslie Smith, whose CV includes broadcasting, and she has also worked as a former police chaplain in San Francisco. Her late husband was a country singer and media executive. And they are looking to get married sometime later this year. Rupert Murdoch's last wife was the model Jerry Hall. They divorced last year. Hmm. We are talking about a legacy media empire. Let's talk about a new media empire and its potential downfall. We're talking about TikTok. Now, Beverly, you and I are of a certain age and generation. TikTok is on my phone, but I have to say I don't really use it that much. Are you a TikTok user? It's on my phone. But I'm Mm -hmm. seriously questioning whether TikTok should be on my phone. TikTok has been discussed heavily in the news this week. TikTok is 
a really, really huge social media company. It's got as many users as Snapchat and Twitter combined, but it's not as big as like Meta. What are your feelings like when it comes to the reportage of TikTok and its apparent dangers? Oh, yeah. You're talking about the fact that the BBC has told staff to delete TikTok from their work phones and like governments like New Zealand have banned it from their Mm -hmm. um, government devices. US government has also banned it from employee devices. It's kind of spotty in Australia, but I think there's this expectation that the government will will tell government employees and and MPs basically that you can't have TikTok on on your work phone. You're an ABC employee. Do you have it on your phone? Well, it's my personal phone. The ABC does not pay for my phone. I'm glad to share that with all national and international audience. Uh, Now that I say it, I'm like, oh, someone's going to come and tunnel into my phone. I use it to look at things. Mm -hmm. I use it to catch up on things. I'm not posting anything on TikTok because I can barely make a reel, but I'm comfortable with that. I do wonder about these concerns. The company that owns TikTok ByteDance mm-hmm. and TikTok itself. ByteDance is Chinese-based. TikTok is based in Singapore. TikTok and ByteDance both deny any accusations of surveillance or giving any kind of information to the Chinese government. So that's their position. Part of me does wonder whether a Chinese-owned app is getting undue scrutiny because of suspicions of China. And part of me is like, oh, wow, I should really think about and not be so casual about having this app on my phone. Maybe I will delete it. At the same time, I kind of think that's where young people are using the internet. Like I've read also so many stories about how TikTok is used like a search engine. If you take this app away from young people, first of all, they're going to be really unhappy with you. And then where are we going to find about things like straining your spaghetti in the toilet? <laughs> well, I mean, what I understand is like in the Australian discourse, at least, it's not the threat of taking TikTok off phones or banning it from our country, as other countries have discussed. But all of this anxiety does come from a real place, right? In 2017, there was a law implemented by China that requires companies to give government personal data. Well, last December, parent company ByteDance, they fired four employees who did access data on two journalists from BuzzFeed News and the Financial Times while attempting to track down the source of a leaked report about the company. I guess like I'm in two minds because like how much of this is different to what's been happening with American owned companies. You think of Facebook, you think of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, you think of Twitter and its ownership by Elon Musk. And it's kind of, I don't know, the way in which Instagram actually owns all the content that we put on there already. The way the ads mysteriously appear in your Instagram feed when you're talking to your partner about, you know, buying something or just researching something, all of a sudden they're in your ads. They're listening all the time. It's very creepy. I have to say that when it comes to this platform, I'm a very light user. Funnily enough, my mother is a more addicted person. I remember when she wanted to see some stuff on TikTok, she saw it in an Instagram reel and she says, how do I see more of this? And I'm like, look, I'll install it. I did it myself. I installed it on her phone. Have I exposed her to surveillance? Anyway, the next day I saw her and I was like, mom, you look really underslept. Are you okay? And she said, I'm addicted to TikTok. So I've ruined someone's life. It's an incredibly addictive platform. And I do feel, I don't know, in two minds personally, because I'm like, one, have I sold out my mother to the Chinese government? But on the other hand, like a lot of tech analysts have said, well, yes, the threat of data harvested from TikTok and being sold to the Chinese government is real. At the same time, to what extent is that different from US privately owned companies having already harvested and in some cases exploited 
our data already. That's it. I'm quitting everything. Stop everything. <laughs> There's nothing else to talk about. We can't talk about the internet anymore because we're getting off the information superhighway. Jumping off this wave, not surfing the internet anymore. <laughs> March 2023 is shaping up to be a pretty big month for TV. We've got a lot of big name shows premiering new seasons this month. Ted Lasso, Succession, Yellow Jackets, Beverly. How am I going to find the time to fit all of this into my skull? Oh, we are once again over-entertained and oversaturated. <laughs> Woe is us because that's not even all of it. Those are the returning shows. We have some brand new shows also debuting with lots of anticipation around them. There's Beef, starring Stephen Young and Ali Wong. Donald Glover has a new show he's co-created called Swarm. And a guy named Benjamin Law, you might have heard of him, he's involved in a new show that's starring Select Barber called Well Mania. We will be talking about some of these shows on Stop Everything this week, for the next few weeks, for the foreseeable future, because we've got such a backlog of entertainment to push through, but right now we are going behind the scenes of one of the most extreme shows on television, Alone. Mm, Alone Australia. Now, this is the homegrown version of the international series that has had American and Scandinavian global hits. It finally arrives on SBS and SBS On Demand on the 29th of March. We're halfway to the South Pole. We're going to be totally alone. It's cold, it's rain, it's snow. We're all going to leave changed forever. There goes humanity. Yeah! A $250,000 prize would change my life. I'm not out here for coming first if it means I'm going to kill myself. Wow, that score, Succession, Survivor, all rolled into one. That's just exciting enough alone. So this is what happens in Alone. Participants are given 10 chosen items of outdoor gear, as well as 70 kilograms of no. camera equipment. And then they are dropped utterly alone in the wet, rugged terrain of West Coast Tassie in the middle of winter and... If you outlast your other nine participants, that means you don't tap out, you are not medically evacuated because you will die if not, you get to walk away with a quarter million dollars, 250K. That sounds like a lot, right, Ben? But it's merely half of the pot of Survivor's half a million. And this show frankly makes Survivor looks like a walk in the park. Oh, I'm offended. As a Survivor participant alumni, how dare you, Beverly? No, I'm just kidding. I've watched the first episode of Alone. You would assume that I, having done Survivor, would be up and prepared for something like this. But as soon as I watch this, I'm like, absolutely not. They are worlds apart. I took a fellow Survivor participant to the media preview of Alone. Who did you take? Wait, side I note. took Sneaky Stevie. Oh. And he is a bit of a survivalist outdoors adventurer himself. And after we watched the first episode, we both came out of it with very different reactions. I said, wow, I know I did Survivor. I would absolutely not do this. Stevie's like, I'm going to sign up for season two. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I couldn't do what we're watching right there because that terrain is so hostile. And also, 
the horror is in the title. It's the isolation. Whereas Sevier's just like, no, that's what I'd thrive with yeah. because I didn't like the social mercenary aspect of Survivor. The isolation that is fine. That deeply confused him. It really knocked him around. But yeah, if he's just got the challenges, go for it, Stevie. I can't wait to watch. Now, it's perfect because if Stevie does want to apply, we have a connection. We have the executive mm-hmm. producer of Alone Australia, who we spoke to very recently. Rima Dea is the EP of Alone Australia. Rima Dea, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. We're excited too. Now, I believe before you were even involved in making the Australian version of Alone, you were a self-described super fan of the format. Is that true? 100%. I was dragged kicking and screaming to the TV to watch the first episode by my partner because in my mind it described to me like a Bear Grylls kind of show and that's what I thought I was getting in for. So I made some kind of bet with him, okay, well, I'll watch one episode but if I don't like it you have to watch a whole season of Grey's Anatomy with me. (laughs) And so I went over to the TV, sat down and I think it was like two weeks later we devoured everything that was available at the time. Fast forward to now, you're making the Australian version but but take us back to watching those early seasons because there have been quite a few now. What were you surprised by? What fascinated you about the format? I think it was the authenticity of what was going on. I mean, I checked it and double-checked it because I was like, surely they haven't just trusted these people to be out there filming on their own. But the fact that it's self-documented, for me as a producer, was just baffling. It goes against every instinct you have as a producer to hand over the reins and the control to the participants. But on top of the fact that they are self-documenting, they're surviving. Like, it's the real deal. Mm. It doesn't get much more factual than that, I think. It's an incredible series on so many levels. The US and Scandinavian series of Alone have been some of the most popular shows on SBS. So, Rima, when it came to you getting the chance to make the Australian version, how did you want to imprint it as somehow distinctly Australian? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because you don't want to mess with the 11 herbs and spices, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you got the recipe right. You don't really want to mess with it. At its bones, we wanted to make sure that it was true to format, that it paid homage and it was respectful of that original for- format. But It was about keeping the same bones and giving it a new skin. So we wanted to let it be Australian, but we didn't want to be prescriptive about that. We didn't want to go in with an idea of what that meant. We wanted to let that happen organically. And it did through the casting, essentially, and The Wilderness, which is the protagonist of the series. I really want to talk about casting because any show, especially a reality TV show, lives and dies by casting. And there are particular types, archetypes of participants who've featured in the other series. You see the bush survivalists, the kind of earth mother hippie type vibes, ex-military people. What kind of person typically puts up their hand to volunteer for signing themselves up to a loan and what are you looking for? What we're looking for in the very first instance as a baseline is people that we know can stay alive. (laughs) So we start with competency, then we want interesting characters. If you're going to look at these people talking to themselves and nobody else the whole time that they're in this experiment, we need people that are going to be engaging. So we looked for all of those characters that really jumped out, but we really wanted them to be representative of a cross-section of who the survival community is in Australia. I think that heavy military background is probably more quintessential of the Northern Hemisphere survivalists, but there's a very different approach to survival in Australia and it's much more varied, I think. Mm. What's particularly Australian about their approach? 
There's such a variety. I think it depends where you live in Australia as to what your approach is. The landscape changes and your approach to survival changes with that. So there's a natural diversity that exists based on how you survive in different parts of the country. I think COVID did something to our survival interest. And so there are a lot more everyday people who aren't necessarily preppers, who aren't necessarily military-based, who aren't formally trained, who are gravitating towards survival skills from a sustainability point of view. We've all asked ourselves the question, in the absence of toilet paper at the supermarkets (laughs) and stock on the shelves, what can we do? And so I I think COVID did drive a lot of people to sort of increase interest in the mm. in the area. So there's a lot more everyday people who have gone to bushcraft schools, who have gone to Indigenous communities to try and find out different ways that they can survive. Mm. Rima, you mentioned that the landscape is the main character, the protagonist. And in Australia, we have such a variety of different environments. And this series is shot in Western Tasmania in the middle of winter. But I'd love to know how you landed there rather than, say, the outback where Survivor has been shot, for example, or even the tropical jungle. I think every possible variation of landscape was explored by us before we landed on Tasmania. But we unanimously wanted to do a winter series. Mm. And we wanted an equaliser. And I think when you look at all the various landscapes in Australia, if you want the most challenging wilderness and you want a proper equaliser, then you go cold and you go rough and you go tough and it doesn't come much rougher, tougher or colder than West Coast Tasmania. So, What does that landscape give you and what does it take away from you in terms of surviving in a landscape like that? Look, for a lot of our participants, it was starting from scratch and trusting instinct instead of training because they had to listen to a new landscape that they hadn't experienced before. You've got the roaring 40s winds coming in off the West Coast. You've got rain, sometimes relentless rain. And if it's not relentless, then it's regular enough that you have muddy ground. If you're used to that dry bush or even just used to being dry, So it takes away from you all of your comforts and it makes it as hard as possible for you to do all of those things that you can do on your own piece of land. Mm. And Rima, you have a long list of TV credits on your CV and they include shows like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, Love Island and The Voice. So reality TV competition celebrity. Here comes Alone, which is kind of the same, but actually so different. Do you put Alone in that same category of reality TV? And how was your previous resume in that genre of TV? How was that put to use? And how is it kind of a completely different pivot for you? It was a 360 pivot. Look, there are similarities in terms of the way that you prepare for series. So when you go through casting, you have a set of criteria, you know how to look for people, you find those people, you set the criteria, you interview them, you prepare them for something that they're not prepared for, and then you get ready to make the series. So the preparation had lots of similarities, but we found that we had to draw very, very heavily on consultants because we were entering into a territory that none of us were familiar with. The cast themselves know what they're doing. They know all about what they're getting in for. But as producers, it's all new to us. So we had to learn a lot very fast in order to understand what we were doing with our participants and what we were sending them into and to prepare them properly. So, you know, you get them ready for the experience and then you get to launch day, which is similar to lots of launch days on other shows. And you do backstories. You know, we all know how to do those when you've done reality TV forever. But then you get to launch day 
and you prepare all your cast and you drop them all off and then you come back to base and usually that's when things fire up and go crazy on a production and everything was quiet. Mm. And we went, oh, what, what do we do now? <laughs> and then we went, oh, now we wait. Now we've got 10 people who we've just taught how to become documentary makers out in the bush. We've got no idea what they're doing. We can't see them. And now they're just making their own documentaries and we just wait and see what they do. And so coming back to that label of reality, is alone reality TV to you? I thought it might be going in, but no, I think it's factual. I think it's as factual as factual gets or it's reality in its very first incarnation of reality before we started poking at it and producing it and we were observationally looking at people going through life. It's as raw as it comes as far as documentary making goes. And essentially what makes it a reality series is the fact that there's a prize at the end, really. But we're taking 10 individual documentaries and stitching them together into episodes. And it's all raw footage where there's no narrator, there's no producing. You said earlier that when you discovered that alone, the format just relies on self-observed raw footage that you thought as a producer, this doesn't really make sense. Like, how do you make a TV show out of this? You've been giving us some clues in terms of how it's stitched together. Can you tell us a bit more about the logistics? Because it sounds like the participants are trained in terms of how to use the equipment. They have to haul this equipment into this landscape as well. I think it's 70 kilos worth of recording gear with them. What's involved in making them become essentially documentary makers? I think credit to the people who were running our series in terms of teaching our cast how to. (laughs) It was a compression session. We put 10 people inside a pressure cooker during boot camp and boot camp is the week that leads up to series and that's where we give them all of the rules and regulations about how to behave on the land. But predominantly during boot camp for four days in a row, we're giving them storytelling and tech lessons. So for some of them, They've never put a card in a camera before. They've never even thought about how to frame a shot. They've never thought about multiple cameras or multiple angles or the size of a frame. So we give them a crash course in storytelling and a crash course in tech and a crash course in troubleshooting. And then on day four, when we can see someone still struggling to get a card in the slot, we're terrified. (laughs) They've got so much to worry about out there and you're giving them that on top of it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's the part that some of them are the most resentful about, you know, just let me do the experiment, but we still need to see it. But if you do the experiment and there's no tape, did you really do the experiment? Exactly. (laughs) It must be such a huge contrast and such a kind of a letting go to have to sit back and trust that not only are they living out there, but they're also capturing the footage correctly. What does that feel like? pure terror. (laughs) But it's the good kind of terror. You know, it's that thrill-seeking terror that you have on a roller coaster. You're terrified the whole time. And until you see the first lot of rushes and you go, okay, they all turned the camera on and I can hear them. That's something to start with. There's relief when you see all 10 have actually submitted cards that work and we can hear and see things. But what happens is you start to let go of all of your producer instincts where you go, oh, wish they'd done a second take of that or I wish they had a different angle on that. And you start to learn that all of those mistakes that they make, and there are lots, there's someone eating their soup for the first time with their head completely out of frame. So we're just looking at an entire full frame of bush. (laughs) Can't even see the bowl, but you can hear them. So you learn to sort of embrace all of those mistakes as authenticity. And you remind 
remind yourself that when you watch the series in the first place, that's what you loved about it. You loved them messing up or framing badly and and you loved that actually reminded you that it was real. There must be such both dread and excitement when you get that raw footage on the on the memory stick for the first time because it's such a different proposition to a lot of other shows where I imagine you can watch what's being filmed in monitors as it's actually happening. Tell us more about that. Like what are the things that you do see when you open up that potential Pandora's box of footage? I can tell you that you've never seen more people gathered around a monitor the first time those cards came through. (laughs) And then there were texts being sent off to all parts of Australia to go, it's okay, it's okay, it's working. (laughs) Do you know what? (laughs) You see lots and lots of really boring footage (laughs) a lot of the time. When you think about somebody building a shelter in real time. (laughs) Oh, I know how boring that is personally, (laughs) just from another experience. (laughs) Sometimes you've got someone who's sitting there and who's watching maybe someone chop down some branches and Mm -hmm. that goes for about 45 minutes straight. They might talk to us at the start of that and then talk to us again at the end. But for 45 minutes, you've got a producer (laughs) sat there looking at those rushes. But I have to say you cannot scrub through that. So you have to just sit there and watch. And sometimes it does your head in, to be honest, but you have to sit and watch because you'll see during series, for example, this is a little spoiler, someone swings an axe and there's a moment oh. and had you scrub through that footage, oh. you would miss a near the miss. A near miss. But there are moments that you just don't want to miss. And so you have to sit there because the gold sits in there somewhere <laughs> in a flash. I hope all fingers and toes are intact in this series of Alone Australia. <laughs> I'm sure there are some moments where you're scrubbing through the boring stuff and then they must turn the camera off right where it gets good and you have the opposite reaction. Like, oh, why did they do that? Yes. <laughs> there may be some profanities shared in the production office. Absolutely, that happens. But that's the beauty of the audio. Sometimes you'll just use that audio up against a nature shot. So it's the beauty of this series that it is so raw that you just go with the mistakes as well. Mm. Just thinking about alone as observers, it really does feel like a risky proposition in so many ways. The way it's filmed, the way that they're just in the landscape without shelter, they have to build all of this themselves, the location is hostile really. The risks on the participants, both physically and mentally, we can only imagine what kind of insurance policies were taken out and involved. How would you describe those risks and how do you manage it? The risks in this series are incredible. I mean, I think for everyone, when you watch on the couch as a viewer, as an observer, the first question you ask, especially if you're in the industry, is how the hell did they get insurance for this? The risks are huge. They're managed essentially by making sure that our safety protocols are robust and we have a safety team that is in standby mode 24 hours a day. So that includes a doctor, a paramedic, a safety officer, a survival officer, a coxswain who's going to drive that boat and knows the waterways very Mm. well and can get there. We have state safety on alert, ready to respond. So we make that place as safe as possible to respond in the same way that you would if you were hiking, for example, but you're being monitored and you have a team that's ready to go rather than calling for help. So it's a robust safety system in place, but the risk is there for everyone. The risk is there that you're not going to get enough footage to make a series. The risk is there that someone could very literally die out there Mm. and it's terrifying. 
but that's what draws you to the show, isn't it? Yeah, that, that risk. That risk. And the other risk is the mental risk. And I want to talk about that because the next closest show to TV that I can think of compared to Alone in everyone's imagination is probably Survivor. I now know that show quite intimately from the inside out. I was recently a cast member, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do Alone and I wouldn't be able to, one, for all the physical logistics of building a shelter, but the second thing is it's actually in the title, Alone. You are out there by yourself on Survivor it's tough, it's rough, you're in the elements, but I've got company to talk to, I've got company to keep me mentally alert. I mean, sometimes they might induce a little bit of mental illness, but here you really are isolated and that's the other part of the challenge. Yeah, look, I think it's unprecedented. I don't think there's anything like it. The mental challenge, that deep isolation and that psychological distress, and that's what it is. It becomes psychological distress for a lot of them, is something that you can't prepare for. Lots of them have been out on their own. Lots of them have had the experience of hiking for days or camping for for some of them. Mike, for example, who has had some experience for 50 days being out in the wilderness on his own. But the difference is, is that they had control of their communication. So, They had satellite phones. They could text their loved ones. Their loved ones could check in with them. They had the ability to communicate if they wanted to. And it's amazing what happens when you take that control away because even just being able to pick up that phone and call home Mm. or send a text and receive one back breaks that isolation, but they had nothing to break that isolation. So it becomes the hardest challenge, really. Another aspect of the mental challenge, I imagine, is also not knowing how long to go for. With something like Survivor, if you're out there for 45 days, you know you've won. But here, you actually don't know when the others are dropping out. Is that another realm of challenge and risk, not just for the participants, but also you as producers? Absolutely. I mean, this is part of the reason why I pull it out of the reality realm and put it into factual. You can't call it a competition when there's no sense of competition. You can't assess where you are at all in the order of play at any stage. You can't work out whether you're doing well compared to anybody else, whether someone else is doing way better than you. When you're trying to work out whether it's time to tap out, you can't even assess whether it's worth hanging in for one more day because it might mean that you win or it might mean that you come third. To this day, they still don't know their order. So they're waiting to watch with the viewing public. Apart from the winner, of course, everyone else is waiting to find out where they fell in the order of of the game. It's not like Drag Race where you film three different endings and you just play the one of whoever RuPaul chooses. (laughs) Quite different. (laughs) Something that is a bit different in the Australian series and in this series is that there are no apex predators. There's no hello bear kind of moment on the show that might be seen as lower risk and possibly easier. I'm using finger quotes because we know that the landscape is very difficult. But do you have to kind of face those questions about is the Alone Australia series going to present the same kind of dangers as the other franchises? Yeah, you know, that was the first question I think I was asked by everybody who knew that I was making the series, just went, yeah, but we've got no bears. What do you do? Hey, bear. You know, that's (laughs) such a quintessential catchphrase of the series. At first, we wondered whether it would be as compelling without those apex predators, but we still have quite dangerous animals out there. Everything's just a bit smaller in Australia. I mean, 
your Tassie devils and your quolls out there have a jaw power that is terrifying. And if they got into your shelter and wanted some of your food, you're in trouble. You've got tiny things like jack jumpers. Do you know what a jack jumper no, is? No, tell please me. Tell. They sound terrifying. Jack jumpers are little bull ants, but they're pretty tough and they're pretty aggressive. And if you get bitten by a jack jumper, I think one in three people has a response to it. So it could be a very serious situation. We still have snakes. We still have spiders. And the wilderness itself is quite menacing and it's quite terrifying. So in terms of that fear, in terms of the danger, I think it's just as strong and it's just as big. I see our Tasmanian producer, Sarah, nodding along in wholehearted agreement. You do talk about compellingness and the elements that make a show compelling. And one of the things that I've found compelling about Alone Australia is the First Nations dimension of the show, First Nations participants, but also First Nations knowledge. Tell me about that aspect of the show. To be honest, this is my favourite part of the show. I absolutely love that this series draws upon the ultimate experts, which is our First Nations people. We can talk about survival expertise, but we've got probably the world's ultimate survival yeah, experts in this country. Isn't that amazing? So to be able to draw on that and to be able to draw on that in Tasmania was just a privilege, really. Mm. So we had our Palawa teachers from Tasmania who joined our team and they informed our cultural, historical and very practical awareness of how to be on that land. We had bushcraft and edibles advice and they were there from the outset before we got started during the casting process through boot camp, all the way through series, and then all the way through post as well. You'll know the factoids that pop up on screen during the series. So there's lots of Palawa education to be had. It's such a great way to start conversations, educate, and, you know, if this show gets picked up internationally, that will travel overseas. In terms of the knowledge and the boot camp and getting people ready, what about when it comes to hunting and fishing? What was off limits? What was allowed? So there was a strict list that we workshopped with local authorities. Most of what was allowed were species that were pest species or introduced species. There was a much longer list of prohibited species. And so we don't really teach them how to hunt or fish. It's very important, that balance in boot camp to not teach because we need everyone to come in with the skills that they came in with, but to teach about the regulations of working within the frameworks that were allowed for us to be on that land. So there was a long list of prohibited and permitted species and they just stuck to those and I'll, I'll let you watch the series to find out what they were. <laughs> I imagine there are some closely guarded production secrets. I know on Survivor, where we poop is one of the most closely guarded secrets and I just keep telling people that we simply didn't. What was poop management like for this show? That was one of the how-tos that we did teach during boot camps. <laughs> Our amazing survival expert, Gordon Dedman, did a demonstration on how to make a bush latrine mm -hmm. in a very sustainable way and in a way that biodegrades in a way that doesn't harm the local area. So um, they all learned how to do that. I never actually asked to see those latrines, to be honest, <laughs> but they definitely made their own. No toilet paper, I will say that. So, oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I hope that you didn't scan footage, log tape, and all of a sudden the secret <gasps> log was... Log <laughs> tape. <laughs> Did you mean to do that? Oh, uh, you know, we're wordsmiths over here. Um, Rima Dayer, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for popping the hood on Alone Australia. I know there's huge fans of the show. There's so much anticipation. So congratulations on the series, and thank you for talking to us on Stop Everything. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to seeing Ben on series two. Uh -huh. Ooh, <laughs> you'll see me out first boot. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Tapping out. Rima Dea is the executive producer of Alone Australia. Alone Australia premieres on Wednesday, the 29th of March at 7.30pm and will continue weekly exclusively on SBS and SBS On Demand. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Emergency. That's your cue to evacuate the podcast now if you have not watched the following show. The first two episodes of Ted Lasso Season 3 on Apple TV+, Plus, because we're going to talk about that right now, right this second. So you have been warned. Beverly, we're in the final season of Ted Lasso, and a lot of people who have been on this journey are going to be equally invested in this finale. But there are some people out there who are just ambiently aware of this Ted Lasso phenomenon. What's the setup? Ted Lasso, I think, became really popular in the peak of the global pandemic when we were all locked in and feeling miserable. So many people discovered this show that brought happiness and was what? positive. TV so can do that? It was the positive wave of the Ted Lasso effect. Ted Lasso is this character developed by Jason Sudeikis. And Ted Lasso in this show is this very happy-go-lucky, cheery, think Ned Flanders, but a sports Mm. coach, right? He even has the mustache, and there is a moment in season three where he even describes that way. So the reference is a real one. He's this very sunny kind of American coach who knows nothing about round ball football, Mm -hmm. and he is basically hired in the season one as a joke by Rebecca, who has gotten Richmond Football Club as part of her divorce settlement. Rebecca wants to bring it down by hiring Ted Lasso. Yeah, she wants to tank the season. So she basically hires Ted because she knows he knows nothing about the game and will ruin it. But lo and behold, this unlikely Ted Lasso character, accompanied by his loyal assistant coach, Coach Beard, they come to Richmond, they transform the culture, and basically through the relentless kindness, positivity, and optimism, wins over this ragtag football team that hasn't won a trophy. And so that's the genesis of Ted Lasso. And subsequently, seasons two and now season three are delving deeper into the psychology of Ted. Therapy is actually one of the main through lines of season two. And it has become a beloved show for the reason why it blew up during the pandemic. And has won tons of Emmys too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, Tons of Emmys. And it is important to issue a spoiler for this because season three, the final season of Ted Lasso, people have been waiting for this. We've been thirsting for Ted. (laughs) We've been out in the desert. This is the final season and the pivot from season one to season two was much discussed. The turn to focusing on mental health. And now we've got a new pivot from season two to season three and a new adversary. That's right. So the long-awaited question was, how is Nate's heel turn going to manifest? So at the very end of season two, we saw that Nate, who had this immense transformation from being the lovable kit guy to being the, how to say, extremely angry extremely hurt, extremely frustrated Nate, basically turn against Ted and betray him in a terrible way, jump ship to West Ham, which is the new team owned by Rebecca's ex-husband, Rupert. So the two dark forces have aligned. We've got the Emperor and we've got young Darth Vader over (laughs) at West Ham. 
And that is the question of what's going to happen. So Richmond has been promoted back into the Premier League. West Ham is this well-funded, shiny new rival. And the backdrop is, you know, Rebecca and Rupert's broken marriage and the tailings of that destroyed relationship, as well as now what's going to happen between Ted and Nate now that they are on an equal footing as managers and rivals. So there's a lot going on there. How will it play out? This is the question that the first episode of Ted Lasso sets up and that the second episode, which is what we have so far, begins to draw out. And I got to say, Ben, there was a lot of critique between the jump from season one to season two. A lot of people said Ted Lasso should just try to stay happy. Why have they done this to us? I was not one of them. I was there for Mm. the journey. And with a bit of trepidation, because when you like a show a lot, you're always worried about how it's going to turn out. I'm also on the journey for season three. And I'll say this, every first episode of a series or season is spent doing a lot of work, right? Oh, it is thankless work for the person who is writing the first episode of any season. You have to like remind audiences what happened in a way that isn't too on the nose. You have to like set up the stakes for the season ahead. How did you find this first episode? Look, it is building blocks, but I think there's a lot of potential there. We get the satisfaction of seeing everybody return after a break. So it picks up right at the end of Ted's six-week break with his son. And then they're back at work. New season, Mm -hmm. new season. So we get this kind of parallel, which makes sense. And we see the characters in the new places. So Keely has got her new PR firm, which I think sets up a lot of potential for characters, has been hinted because this is the final season of Ted Lasso. Possibly Jason Sudeikis, one of the co-creators of Ted Lasso, is open to spin-offs. So you can kind of see how Keeley's PR agency is a perfect setting for a spin-off. Now, what do you want to see in a third and final season of Ted Lasso? This show that is just universally loved. And I have to admit that I kind of dropped off in the middle of season two. So I need to pick it back up. Okay, tell me, why did you drop off? I'm not sure. I mean, look, just a member of my generation, just very easily distracted. (laughs) But I do remember thinking, do I need to see this story through? I was wondering if the stakes were high enough for me to keep on following through. Like, what are you feeling now that you're right up into the early days of season three? Do the stakes feel high for you? Well, this is where you and I are very different. I don't Uh need my TV to be high stakes. Oh, I I don't need to have a clench in my chest (laughs) when I watch TV. And so I think Ted Lasso actually serves a really beautiful purpose, which is if you want to feel feelings, Mm. and we know that Beverly Wang is a person who likes to feel feelings and cry tears, okay? I've got too many feelings in my (laughs) life already. If you want to feel feelings, if you want to feel your heart warmed, if you want to become invested in the characters and the stories and feel a non-cynical, genuine love and affection for TV characters, which is totally okay, can I say, we are allowed to have pure affection for things. That's okay. Then I think Ted Lasso is that place for you. And the thing that I found very interesting about season two was, yes, it was the turn into mental health, but this was also a story all about masculinity, men, fathers and sons, all of the things that happened in our childhood that then flow forward and affect how we are as adults. Very rarely, if at all, do we actually see non-toxic men on television processing their feelings in a non-toxic way. And I actually find that to be incredibly refreshing and healing, and I 
enjoy that process. I know it's all writing and these are fictional characters, but it does something to me and makes me feel a certain way. And that's a good feeling. And I want to hang on to it. I hear all of that. I guess I want a he little bit of... He says all of that, but he says, <laughs> where's the pain? Where's the anguish? Where's the teeth? And also, where is more of handsome Brett Goldstein with his shirt off? Like, that would keep me much more interested and involved. Look, so far, Roy Kent is keeping his shirt on. Yeah, not selling it to me, But maybe he's bearing himself in other ways, Benjamin Law. <laughs> okay, well, it sounds like you're definitely on board for the rest of Ted Lasso May season May I three. suggest that... Ted Lasso is straight culture, definitely not queer culture. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I, absolutely I think there's something right. there. And I don't think a show needs to be ostensibly or explicitly queer for it to be queer culture. But I think there is something, exactly what you're saying, the cell of repairing these ideas of straight masculinity is the cell of Ted Lasso. And I'm like, I've been exposed for to a lot of For those of us that. who are cursed with heterosexuality, <laughs> it can be a healing process, okay, to see men behaving in a non-toxic way. It fits a certain spot. <laughs> Beverly, you've been healing and finding solace. Where I've been finding solace has been seeing Asian Americans... Asian diaspora people, usually model minority citizens, acting and behaving really, really poorly. I'm talking about Netflix's Beef, starring Ali Wong and Stephen Yun. It's coming soon to Netflix on April 6th, and it's got a lot of buzz around it already because it's produced by A24. This is the production company that swept the Oscars with everything, everywhere, all at once, and The Whale. They're really known for their art house films, right? But this is them in TV form. And I think what this does is show Ali Wong and Stephen Yun in very, very different roles. Two people locked in a road rage beef that takes over their lives. Beverly, this is not Ted Lasso because this is not relaxing viewing. It's not relaxing viewing, but I will say after I watched the first episode, I just had a tightness in my chest and I Mm. thought, oh, this is hard. But I'm along for the ride now. I understand now that these are two people relishing being their worst selves. And you can see when they are at their worst and angry and most unhinged. There's a little smile playing at their lips. Mm. Let's also be honest that sometimes we do some crazy batshit things when we are feeling like we have broken. And, you know, the day after you might feel like, what the heck did I do? But in that moment, that rush of adrenaline is powerful and can surge you forward. Shall we just hear a little bit of what that sounds like? You have this serene Zen Buddhist thing going on. Hey. I'm a dangerous guy. (laughs) So stop messing with me and leave me alone or else. I would love to let this go. Actions have consequences. I just can't understand what those people are so angry about. Ooh, listen to that Gen <laughs> X geriatric millennial soundtrack, Smashing Pumpkins, OG music. Like, this is pitched towards, I think, you and me, Beverly. Mm-hmm. Like, is this show made for us? So let's just set up the premise. You've got Ali Wong internationally renowned comedian from her Netflix comedy specials. She plays Amy Lau. She's the designer who's quite well off, picture perfect life. She's on the verge of like landing a big business deal. And like in real life for Ali Wong, Amy is the family's main breadwinner. And just as an aside, there are some really interesting interviews with Ali Wong about her 
role in this and how it really parallels a lot of stuff that she was going with in real life with her marriage. And this was quite a dramatic role for her in terms of her work, but also tapping into a lot of like personal emotions. You can see it when she's actually performing this character of Amy Lau. Her antagonist is Stephen Yun, who plays Danny Cho. He is battling financial horror on every front and really trying to be a good brother and a good son and a good worker and kind of falling short every step of the way. So when these two people clash in the first few seconds of this show, they clash in a really big way. Yeah, this is the road rage incident that goes over the top and these people keep being drawn back together and being worse and worse and worse to each other every time they meet. But they have got excellent chemistry, the two of them. And this is Ali Wong's first dramatic role. And she's up against Stephen Yun, who I think at this point is one of the best actors living right now. Oscar-nominated Stephen Yun. And Stephen Yun's, like, I thought of the father in Minari, and I thought, this is another Asian-American man struggling and trying to make it in this world that was not built for him and does not have a clear pathway for him. And he is trying to hustle his way in. Very different stories, but that same kind of clenched migrant dad. Like, I know that Danny Cho doesn't have any kids, but he's got that kind of clench. The world is throwing crap at you, and you have to suck it up and keep going and work and not take a holiday and just keep going. And when he meets Amy Lau, you know, she drives a luxury car, he drives a broken down pickup truck. He sees she's got all the signifiers of the life that he likes, but he assigns characteristics to her that are not based on the reality of her life, the stresses. So she's kind of got that perfect on the outside, terrible on the inside kind of emotional life. Her marriage is failing. Maria Bello, who plays the uh, rich business owner, dangling this deal in front of her, but seemingly like just not Mm. giving it to her, I think is also a really great example of what it's like in the business world, I think, for an Asian woman having to like talk the talk, walk the walk, be the person that the rich white investors want and how that actually grates on you in a really realistic way in this LA world where I think it's really funny, LA, right? Traffic, what a traffic heavy city. And the thing that sets it off is everybody's latent road rage. I hear the keyword clenched here. And I think the road rage incident, as you kind of implied before, is actually a release and the consequences that come from it. I mean, road rage. Sometimes when you flip the bird at a stranger and you're so well within your right and righteous rage to do so, it kind of feels good, right? It's It's like the only liberating, nameless, anonymous thing that you can do. (laughs) And then you can drive off into the sunset, right past them and never engage with that person. Unless they chase you. Which is the premise here. Like this road rage is actually not going to stop. And I wonder if the clenchedness that you felt and that I felt in the first episode isn't necessarily from the premise. It's from all of the familiar pressure that these two very different people feel piling on. And it's not the pressure of road rage and horror and beef where you want to destroy each other's lives. It's the pressure of everyday life that just wears you 
down. I think that's where the stress came from for me. Well, talk about stress. In an interview, the creator of Beef, Lee Sung-jin, actually said that after shooting ended, both Ali Wong and Stephen Yun broke out into hives. <laughs> And he suggests that's a physical reaction to the intensity of the performances that they put into this series. And in particular, he says also Ali Wong just broke down and cried and cried and cried and cried. So this is obviously this acting, but she's been on the record saying how much of a connection there is. And also the timing of this series. Ali Wong has based so much of her comedy on, you know, her needs and desires as a woman, sometimes as a a taboo, as a married woman wanting to have sex with other men, right? That was Mm -hmm. kind of the whole premise of her most recent Netflix special. And then not long after that comes out, she and her husband, they divorce. I think it's very easy, and she sees it too, to see the parallels unfolding in her real life. And then along comes this role, which is playing out a parallel story alongside of it. There's a lot of richness of interpretation analysis here. Mm. Here, you see in Ali Wong's performance, there are moments where she has to just take stock and actually paint on a smile. I mean, all of us do that to an extent. But when you have to do that repeatedly, when you've got a partner who is just telling you things like, why don't we just start a gratitude journal, babe? (laughs) And he is kind of the model father and husband on surface, right? This handsome guy who's playing her husband in the show. But it's like, sometimes that isn't enough, especially when you've got all of these pressures to keep it all together. And you just have someone like Steven Yeun's character entering into your sacred space and violating it in ways that we won't describe just now. And you have suddenly this engine of rage that you can just direct at someone wholeheartedly. And I think I was quite surprised watching Beef because you think of Ali Wong, you think, okay, we're going to get a comedy out of this. But her acting range in a drama is incredible. And I think the comedy actually comes from the strange specifics of the world in which she finds ourselves or even the intra-cultural, intra-Asian tensions. There's one point where she tells her husband, who is a Japanese character in the show, she's just like, oh, that guy, Steven Yun, he didn't like that you were Japanese. And all of a sudden he's on board. Yeah, because the guy's Korean and you're like, oh, I feel that (laughs) as a motivating force for him to go wild. The twitch of the eye, huh? What (laughs) What they say? This is a show that is so happy to explore that thing that we fear, which is how can you actually be activated and get energy and enjoy your enemy relationship? How can that actually be an activating force in your life? You wake up in the morning to make someone else's day crap. Mm. Uh, On that note, please follow Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app and ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Stop Everything and we will appear like angels. Hello. Mm. If you're listening to us on the CBC, you can find Stop Everything on all the major podcasting apps. We are there. Big thank you to our producer, Sarah Mashman. Thank you so much for putting up with all of our shenanigans and also our sound engineer, Brendan O'Neill. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Eora and Kula Nations and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. We'll see you next week. Many happy returns on your impending marriage, sir. I love women. (laughs) Sarah's like, please stop. (laughs) You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.